Hey, everyone. Welcome to Superwoman. Today's guest is Daniela Pearson, the founder of Newzette. The Newzette was born and built in between her classes at school and now exists as a multi-million dollar company, website, and newsletter. I am so excited to dig into this with you and hear your story. Daniela, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much. I'm such a big fan of this podcast. I think I told you before I've listened to every single episode, so it's an honor. Oh, yay. Well, that's that's good. I was I felt so nervous when I reached out to you. I was like, I hope she'll reply and see my my request of her. So I'm glad this worked out. <laughs> no, I literally have listened since you started. So congratulations on all of your success, too. Oh, thank you. I'm beyond impressed with what you've built. And I'd love to start at what gave you the idea, first and foremost, to start the news ed and, and maybe describe what it is for people that are not familiar. Absolutely. Um, so I started the news at, I'm 25 now. Um, I was 19 as a sophomore at Boston University, and I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I um, wasn't the best student. I, I can be a good student if I really put my mind to it, but I was always that kind of student that was like, you know, what's the point of lear- learning science, you know, again, when I know I don't want to be a scientist. And that's kind of um, where I was sophomore year of college, still relearning those, you know, core categories that I knew I didn't want anything to do with. And so I knew that I wanted to be in the magazine industry. That industry always just really excited me. Um, I was definitely the person, you know, reading every magazine cover to cover. But I realized that a lot of the internships that um, people around me were getting at those publications, they maybe knew someone or they had much better grades than I did. So I decided that I would kind of start my own mini magazine. Uh, So it really was to maybe different differentiate myself when I did go out to um, get a job, but then slowly it turned into something that I really tried to make my full-time job so that I could just do this after college. So it started as, you know, this gift in your inbox, if you will. I literally had like eight subscribers for the first newsletter I sent out. I came up with the idea. And then the Monday after, I think it was a weekend, the Monday after I sent out my first issue riddled with typos. It's super embarrassing. It would probably be the equivalent of my mother, like showing an awkward baby picture. Uh, So it was not the best, but I persisted and I kind of just fell in love with being able to continue to give and um, get something out of this little project I was building. Building. So over the last six years, we've really transformed into this female empowering media company. And so our marquee product is the daily email newsletter. So every single day, our subscribers are treated to um, topics that oftentimes become marginalized in a busy woman's schedule. So stuff like fashion, tech, beauty, business, women's rights, and beyond. So we recap all of that stuff in our cheeky voice. And then we introduce our subscribers to a new woman every single day. So we be someone like Selena Gomez or Diane von Furstenberg, who's actually my mentor, or a totally new up and coming entrepreneur from halfway across the world who's just getting started. So we like to say that our mission is to make women feel like they can kick ass every single day. So first and foremost, you know, I think there's people out there that go, oh, I, you know, very similar to you. They want to start something so that when they get out of school, they have, you know, something on their resume. But I would say the odds of becoming and um, achieving what you've done are 99 to one. So what do you think it was about Newsette that set you apart, 
that made it so that so many women, I mean, you can talk about how many subscribers you have and how you've grown the business, but it's pretty incredible the reach you have and the audience you have in such a short amount of time. So I'd love to hear what you think sets you apart and how you've differentiated your product in the market. Yeah, for sure. So I, it definitely was not this overnight success or, um, you know, a case where I came up with a product and all of a sudden millions of people flocked to it. I really had to work hard. I like to compare it to like me, just the news that being like a square peg and just trying to jam it into a round hole until finally it turned into a circle because I just, I wouldn't give up. I realized that the time that I was in college, I was lucky enough that my only job in college was to be a student. And so I thought, you know, if I can spend the time where people are maybe making friends or partying or, you know, um, doing, you know, uh, side curriculum stuff that I could actually invest in my future by building a company. And so I was really lucky that I had that time where I didn't have to have a full-time job and I was able to use those free periods to build the business. So while I was in college, it was really focused on building the audience, not anything to do with monetizing. I didn't start that until after I graduated in 2017. I think the reason why this was able to work is because I really focused all the time on the consumer of the product. And so I I always thought, how do I want this woman to feel when they open this email? And um, I was so, um, I guess, gung-ho on making every single day such a delightful and surprising experience that I really poured almost all of my energy on the content um, in the beginning so that when I did end up monetizing, I did have that, you know, loyal subscriber base that then I was able to build. And so we have um, over 500,000 subscribers um, now, and we have incredible women who open our newsletter every single day. We have amazing business partners. So we work with brands like Amazon, Ulta Beauty, Fidelity, um, Bumble, just to name a few. And then we actually have been able to do a lot with a very lean team. So we, as of right now, we have just over 10 employees. Uh, But last year we had under 10, I believe it was about seven. And we were actually able to, during a time where coronavirus was really wreaking havoc among media companies, we were able to 7x our revenue. And just 10 employees, um, we were able to in 2021, um, actually do all of our revenue from 2020 in just the first two months of the year. And so I'm a big believer in having a lean but mean team. And so I think that that's also another thing that contributed to our um, success. Let's talk about how you went from, you know, I'm sure the dynamics change when you go from something again, you start in school, fast forward, you are running a multi-million dollar company with employees, have half a million subscribers. How did you mentally prepare and or educationally prepare to take on that role? And was that easy or hard? would love to dive into how you had to evolve because I wasn't a business person at all. And I'll never forget when my brother gave me a lecture, which still makes me want to vomit about how I had to evolve. (laughs) And I didn't want to evolve. I just want to stay in the back and design pretty things. But obviously, I'm so much happier that I took his advice and became a business person. 
For sure. And I think the cool thing about being a modern day business person is that you don't have to be, you know, the cartoon where you're just looking at a spreadsheet, you can be a creative and you can really think outside of the box. And so I actually think when I started the news that I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, um, that was always my goal. And I just so happened to have to learn the creative and the content piece because I didn't have any, you know, funds. I didn't, I never took VC funding in order to get my brand off the ground. So I had to be like the janitor, the writer, the partnerships person, the everything. And so I kind of just had no choice but to figure it out. So I actually think that I started with a little bit more business savvy than content. And that was something that I had to learn through trial and error. Uh, In terms of preparing myself to actually be responsible for, you know, we have over 10 people now, we're actually hiring about 10 people in the next few months. And so we're going to double and who knows, triple. Um, It's just been a lot about learning from my peers. So um, I'm lucky enough now that because, you know, the tide is changing and we're quite, not quite there yet, but a lot of females are getting funding now. um, I'm able to have incredible peers that are either my age or a bit older who have gone through this process. So we're able to talk about that together. Whereas when I started, I really felt isolated because in the media landscape, even though there are many women's media companies, it is very rare for any of them to actually be started or run by women. So um, it's nice now to be able to have some peers, not in the media, not only in the media space, but in consumer goods, et cetera, um, and in tech to be able to speak to. I did a lot of learning by listening to podcasts. So podcasts like yours, um, but then also, you know, podcasts on how to reach people on Facebook, how to grow my subscriber list. I read, I read a few books. I basically researched every female founder and, you know, male founder that I wanted to emulate and listen to all of their, you know, talks and their panels and all of that stuff just to really absorb what I needed. And that was a way that I really, I guess, became the CEO that I am today. I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning, especially with knowing who to hire and how to allocate my resources. I think that management has definitely been the biggest hurdle for me. And I'm finally feeling like I've found my groove. Um, and so it's, it's always a learning process. And even six years later and, you know, millions of dollars a month of revenue, I I'm still learning. So walk me through the process now, like your thinking process. I'm sure you're being courted by people who want to throw money at you. I'm sure, you know, as you're looking to scale, you might be considering taking on funding and I love that you didn't, first of all, we didn't take on funding until we, we absolutely needed. And I always advise women to, to go as long as they can without, without funding so they can own their destiny. How are you thinking about the business now? And is it a challenge knowing that you have an incredibly hot commodity? Everyone wants a piece of it, but do you need to give that up? And so curious to know what you can share on that front. Of course. Um, Yeah, I always like to be really transparent when it comes to funding because um, now, you know, more people are being transparent. But when I actually, I did try to get funding. So it wasn't this choice where, you know, everybody was throwing money at me and I decided not to. After I graduated, that was one of my, you know, first um, milestones for myself was to get funding and people just really didn't understand. I actually had a horrible experience at one of, you know, the world's biggest 
VC firms where I had an amazing meeting with two female, you know, investors. And then they decided to invite me in to speak to like the head honcho, the big guy, like, you know, known around the world. And I ended up giving my pitch and he was just kind of smiling and almost laughing. And I, you know, stopped and I was like, okay, um, you, do you have any feedback? And he was like, yeah, you remind me a lot about my granddaughter. And he started laughing and I was like, oh, that's great. She must be very smart and have a great startup. And he stopped smiling and he said, no, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And she speaks way too fast and kind of laughed me out the room. And at, at that point, I kind of, the chip on my shoulder became bigger. And I was like, I'm going to do this without funding. I'm going to prove everyone wrong. And so it was kind of a necessity instead of a choice that I had to, but I'm so grateful for that because every single thing that we did to grow, we had to make an ad, you know, revenue in order to fund that. And so it was instead of, you know, maybe raising a million dollars from VCs, we had to make that million dollars from like 200 different brands, if that makes sense in the early days. And so it really felt like we were sweating to make that money and that every single dollar meant so much because there wasn't, you know, another dollar waiting in the bank. It really was everything that we had. And so I'm, I'm really, really lucky because I think I avoided a lot of mistakes just by not even having the funds to make those mistakes in the beginning. And now, you know, being a hundred percent in charge of my destiny is really exciting because when these big VCs or private equity firms are now approaching us to purchase a piece of us, I'm able to say no confidently because we just, we're doing very well. We don't need the money at the moment. Our revenue is just kind of crazy that our projections for the year is, is mind blowing. And I think it's important to know that you don't always have to raise VC money in order to get to, you know, 40 or $50 million in, in sales and be highly profitable. You can kind of stick to your guns and, and really, um, you know, it might take longer, but you own your destiny and you're able to fully decide what you're going to do next. And so to answer the second part of your question, what's next is, I'm really trying to build the world's biggest female empowerment company. I, I love the idea that we can meet different women in different parts of their life and in their routine and inspire them. So whether that means, you know, building upon what we've built with the news that newsletter, or even working more with brands as we have recently to change the way that they look at their consumers and add initiatives that make them look internally about the females on their team and on their exec board, that's all very exciting to me. And so you can expect a lot of growth this year from us in terms of expanding our offerings and then also expanding our user base so that everybody can feel like they can kick ass every single day. Incredible. So inspiring. And I'm so happy you're one of the few that had the right thought about, yeah, the money would have been nice, but the fact that you didn't raise it and now you know what it takes to to produce that, I think is a golden skill because I sadly think that so many females today and starting companies just think they have to raise money. Like I, I had a woman who was starting a clothing company raising money. I said, why? Like just <laughs> sell your clothing and make sure you make a margin. Why do you need to raise VC money for, you're not a tech product, you know? <laughs> so I think that some women get blinded by that and then they they get disheartened if they can't raise it or they think that's the one shot solution. So I'm so happy that you went about it the way you did, whether it was your choice or not. 
<laughs> yeah, totally. And I think it's because it's not just, you know, people having the wrong idea. It's because the media has rewarded so many VC backed companies. When you think about it, you know, in my opinion, it's so much more impressive for a company that raised no money to hit $10 million in sales rather than a company that's raised $30 million to hit $10 million in sales. So I think it's just the way that the media and, you know, people are being championed for just raising money. And I think that raising money is also great. I mean, I'm actually, um, I can't talk too much about it, but I'm working on something else where we are raising money because um, it's just a different kind of product and it's going to be helpful to have those people in the mix. But I think that people should be championed on what they produce and the product and the sales that they're able to do, not just the money they're able to raise, because it's really just convincing very, specific people but when you make a lot of sales you're convincing the world totally that's the most important thing it's not the men who write the checks or or the few incredible women it's it's the product and people wanting it absolutely looking for a podcast about small business blunders mistakes that entrepreneurs have made and how they've screwed things up look no further. Jill Salzman can't stop shouting, especially when it comes to business advice. She hosts the Why Are We Shouting podcast, where she tackles the answers to every mom entrepreneur's questions about running a company. Jill Salzman is an award-winning entrepreneur, author, speaker, and peppermint gum junkie who's been building businesses for over a decade. Over the years, she's tried a million trillion things to grow her businesses, and she wants to save you some time and a few headaches. Tune in to jillsalzman.substack.com or look for the Why Are We Shouting podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. What would you say your biggest challenge has been to date and how did you overcome it or maybe you haven't? I feel like being an entrepreneur, um, and you know this, is every single day you're putting out a million fires, like forget one fire. It's, it's, it's a hundred thousand fires and you kind of have to get good at not taking things too personally. And so a challenge in the past has been taking things very personally, you know, seeing like another newsletter come up and totally, you know, ripping off everything we're doing, you know, having that kind of eat away at me and not let me progress in my own business was a challenge before. I'm happy to say that now it it just kind of slides off of me. So I've gotten better at that. Um, so that's one thing that I think really ate up a lot of my time. Also, you know, I like to think about being an entrepreneur is if you're not, if you're not growing and you're not embarrassed about what you did six months ago, you're not, you know, on the right trajectory. You should just constantly be taking chances and going for things that maybe aren't going to happen, but just, you know, then maybe making that happen a few years down the line. And so I think that when we got a no before for anything, I was, I took that very personally as well. And now it kind of is like, no, well, that's, you know, reassuring because I'm going to make it a yes in six months or like, this is how we're going to get there. And so I, I, think that just the mindset around a no has um, shifted with me. I think the biggest thing though, um, I will say is the management and finding the right people to have on the team. And so right now I can confidently say we have such 
badass women and one man, man on our team um, who they're just incredible. They're so passionate about what we're doing. They're really, you know, here for the long haul. And I'm so proud of that. I think it took me a while and it took me, it, it's not even just me. It took me hiring people around me who knew better about who to hire and how to make a team really not only just a team, but like a high functioning sports team, if you will. Uh, because in the past I really didn't have the best judgment. And so I think that that's still a skill that I'm evolving. Um, but something that I've realized that uh, other people on my team can help me with that. It doesn't just have to fall on me. I think that's one of the hardest things I had to learn in the beginning was, you know, delegating and, mm-hmm. and then, and then once you delegate, not micromanaging and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and crossing your fingers, uh, and then seeing, seeing who can do it, you know, who can hack it out for sure. How do you deal with prioritization? Because I'm sure you, again, with everything you're working on, how do you sort of focus and know which tasks to, you know, are the most important? Yeah, for sure. So I mean that this has also been a struggle um, because oftentimes you think that something is a priority and then you're done working on it and you realize that that could have been pushed, you know, later in the week. And so I think I don't know if lucky is the word, but I've become a little luckier where every single day there's so many things that people need immediately that I kind of know I can create a checklist of what's the most important. And then for any other time, I'm very lucky. I have a chief of staff now, um, which is so funny. Um, Everyone I say that to, they're like, what are you, a senator or something? Uh, But I have a chief of staff and she has just been incredible at um, making sure that I am prioritizing things that need to be done um, first and then, you know, moving things that maybe are more conceptual at the end of the week. So I would say in the beginning of the week, I'm very focused on executing things that whether they're, you know, helping with campaigns that I need to give certain feedback on or deliverables that, you know, a client's looking for that I need to be on. That's more first half of the week. And then second half of the week will be a lot of internal brainstorms or, you know, thinking about the, our 90 day goals or 60 day goals. That's usually at the end of the week when there's not so much priority over things that are just kind of balls in the air. I think that I also am very aware that I am a much more creative person either early in the morning or late at night. And so I will also change things around in my calendar. If there's work time for me, I'll change it when I know that I'm going to be like very present and very, I guess, effective. That's something I've also had to learn. So, you know, I could, I I used to work like, you know, 20 hours a day and just like no sleep and just keep going. And, you know, sometimes I have those nights, like last night, I didn't go to bed until 2am, but I actually woke up and I was good at 830. So it was a rare night where I got some sleep. Uh, But I've, I've been able to now know that I need to say no to a meeting if I'm not going to be a thousand percent there, because I'm so much more effective if you have me for 30 minutes and I'm a thousand percent there rather than if you have me for 30 minutes and I'm five percent there. So I will switch things around. And I feel like I finally have the power to do so with my calendar, but it's taken time. Um, and for me to learn myself and be honest with myself that I might not be the, the most effective at, you know, a 6 PM meeting. But if you do, if we like change it for, you know, the following day at 10 AM, I can kick ass. And so being honest with myself. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think, especially as an entrepreneur, it's like you want to do everything all the time. I always 
say yes to a million things. And then I get angry that I did that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And someone who's listening to this podcast has to change everything all around again. So I, I feel your pain and I'm glad you have a chief of staff to help you manage that. I would love to just know what so far has been your biggest failure and what did you learn from that? Oh, failure. Um, I mean, every single day again, and I know this is like, literally sounds like you opened a um, self-help book, but I truly feel like if you're not failing every single day, you're not growing. And so I'm a big fan of failure and, you know, trying things or even, you know, being trying to get a phone call and then realizing that like, it's not a fit or something, but like, at least you tried. Um, so I think I try to do little failures at least every week, because it means that we're you know, trying to, to fight like, you know, above our weight class and, and really just thrive as a company. But the biggest failure, I think it's, I just have so many, uh, I think the biggest failure for me would probably be, um, my early hiring. I think that I wasted a lot of valuable time, not only my time, but other people's time with making the wrong hires and not, you know, firing quickly. And so I think that I definitely slowed down the company's trajectory by maybe focusing on people who weren't right for the company or focusing on trajectories that weren't right for the company at the time. I feel like I maybe wasted about a year on those things that I I wish I could get back. So I think that that would probably be my biggest failure. Um, And, you know, it still stings, but it's so much sweeter when you when you reach success, when you have so many failures, because it's, it's not just, it's never going to be a hockey stick up to success. It's always going to, there's always going to be a lot of peaks and valleys. Um, and I've had a lot of valleys, but luckily we're, you know, making our way up the mountain. Yes. People, I think all get blinded by the idea of this hockey stick. And I'm like, no, 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 it's going to be a really bumpy road with a huge drops and cliffs that you (laughs) didn't even imagine you'd be driving down. And then you get to go up one again and and on repeat. So I'm glad you highlighted that. There's two questions I love to ask all my guests, which is what is one thing we'd be surprised to know about you? It could be a funny habit, a quirk, just something weird, whatever you want to share. I I thought about what I wanted to say, because again, I'm a fan of the podcast. So I knew this was coming. And I think that instead of, you know, maybe saying something funny, like I'm a, I'm a twin, I, I have an identical twin sister, that might be something people don't know about me. And so, and she's actually like on TikTok and an author. And so a lot of people will be like, oh my God, how many things do you do? You're a TikTok star, you're an author, you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, no, it's split between two people. Oh my um, gosh. So that's, that's a funny thing. But I think the thing that I want to say today is I have OCD. And so it's something that I've been a little public about, um, we did an interview with Selena Gomez and Mandy Tifi last year in the newsette. And I talked about it and it's, you know, a mental health disorder. And it's something that I would have been absolutely mortified to say to anybody, like, you know, when I was first starting out. And now I think because I've had, you know, some form of success, I'm more comfortable to say it, but I think normalizing and destigmatizing mental health is, is a huge 
passion for me now and in something that I'm going to lean a lot into, especially later this year with something that I'm coming out with. And so I think that that would probably be the thing that I want people to know about me. And I hope that, you know, other people feel comfortable to say, you know, similar things on other podcasts as well. So we can normalize the fact that mental illness is real and it's not something that we should be embarrassed about. I love it. And I love that you're working on it as well, which is definitely key to dealing with it, right? For sure. For sure. I think like, you know, the first step is just, you know, realizing that maybe you have a, like you, there's something going on. So whether you don't even have a mental disorder, maybe you're just, you know, anxious or stressed or, or whatnot. Um, so getting help and talking to your family members, I think is like the first step. And so that's, it's a like journey that I've been on for, I guess, you know, the last 15 years of my life. And so I just kind of want anyone listening to this, if they have any sort of, you know, mental illness that maybe they're scared to share, to know that like, you know, I was scared too, but now I'm, I'm proud to, to say that I have it and that I'm working on it and that, um, I'm hopefully getting better every single day. Awesome. And then what is one piece of advice you'd love to leave my listeners with or something you learned that someone gave you that you want to pass on? Um, I think the biggest thing that I've, that has helped me so much is, is from my, my mentor, Diane von Furstenberg, who I, I know that you know as well. Um, she's, she calls herself my fairy godmother. And something she said to me was less is more um, in terms of you know, when you write something and, and it's crazy, people don't really think this, think about this, but in every email you send every single, you know, sentence that you write, you're really selling yourself. And so less is more. And so there's been so many times where I've, you know, been writing something that's either on behalf of Diane and I for a project we're doing or something. And it's like three sentences. And she's like, no, less is more get to the point. And then all of a sudden it's this impactful, powerful one sentence. And so I think like just the less is more concept in your entire life, especially when it has to do with writing or, you know, selling yourself is a, is a huge um, learning that I've had in the last few years and something that I think more people should embrace. Um, and, and to go off of that, just don't be afraid to sell yourself. You know, no one else is going to sell, sell you, you have to sell yourself. And I think that the main reason why we've been able to achieve a lot of the successes at the news ad is because I have a team of people, including myself, who shamelessly will sell ourselves and our company. And because it, it really is a skill that a lot of women aren't comfortable with. A lot of women feel like it's bragging or, you know, um, they're not used to that because it's, it's more of maybe a male quality in society, but it's something everybody should be comfortable with. Cause if you can sell yourself, you can basically do anything. You just said something that made me want to ask you one last question. Okay. <laughs> you were talking basically about that women can do anything that, you know, you have a confidence level and, um, and an, a maturity and an intelligence level. Where do you credit that to? Have you always been like this or were there certain values that you were raised with? Like how, how have you become, you know, so different from let's say peers that might be still wondering what they want to do with their life or, you know, aren't quite sure they're in the right job. And then you sort of shot past them like a rocket. Oh my God. Well, let me tell you, Rebecca, I was not like this 
at all. Anyone who knew me in high school or in college knows this. I was incredibly insecure, like zero confidence. I didn't know I, I was, you know, the opposite of eloquent. I had no idea any, anything having to do with business, with content, anything. I totally learned all of it in the last six years. And I think that the more I've been able to go into rooms and be able to realize that I deserve a seat in the room. And then also, you know, realize that compared to other men, you know, even twice my age that I've been able to accomplish a lot uh, and, and internalize that that's where the confidence comes from. And then also, you know, knowing that even if I hadn't done any, anything, you know, every woman should be confident in themselves because that's your biggest superpower. Um, like speaking of superwoman. And so that is all stuff that I learned. I was probably on the complete other side of the spectrum. And so it's, it's just, it's like, you have to have a conversation with yourself and, and really think like, why am I insecure and how can I overcome that? And that's kind of what I did and, and learning more about business and, you know, achieving certain milestones gave me the cred in my mind to become more confident. But I don't even think that you need to do those things in order to become more confident. You just have to like Diane always says, wink at yourself in the mirror. You, you need to know that you, you are the best version of yourself and you are, you know, incredible in your own way. So to answer your question, I know that I just did a whole big roundabout tangent. I was not like this. I was completely the opposite. And I learned through basically, I guess it comes full circle, reading about the women that we feature in the news that learning about other women, UVA panels and whatnot. I kind of took their confidence and almost borrowed it. And now it's become my own. Ooh, I love that. I love that you took their confidence and borrowed it because, you know, I hate this question and I get asked it a lot, but it's like imposter syndrome. Of course, we're all feeling like fakes a lot. I don't, I don't know anyone who doesn't feel that way unless they're totally crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so I like that it's, it's just borrowing someone's confidence until you feel your own. I think that might be our quote for the episode. Um, Fake it till you make it. That's, exactly. that's definitely been, been my, my superpower. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for being an inspiration to so many young and elderly women like myself. Um, <laughs> no. And keep kicking ass. You are incredible to watch. And um, I only look forward to seeing you just take on the world. Thank you so much. I mean, that you have no idea how much that means coming from you, someone that I've idolized since I started the news at. Um, so thank you for having me. And um, please just continue to feature incredible women like you do on your podcast because it inspires me every day. And I'm sure it's inspiring so many other women. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, Daniela. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birch Boxes, as well as our site.